disaster coming at ya. Back and back at ya. Say it was master coming at ya. Coming at ya. Bounce down disaster coming at ya. Back and back at ya. Say it was master coming at ya. Hello and welcome to In Focus. I am Rom Gayoso, your host. How can we start making sense of the future? Well, that's a very good question. Our guest today will help us with just that task. In today's show, we're welcoming a distinguished member of the World Future Studies Federation, WFSF, to discuss future studies. Folks, the future is arriving a lot faster than what we think. So let's get going. So before we get started, let me say a few words about the show proper which is in focus. This show is a result of a partnership between WFSF and yours truly, Futures Television. We're joining forces to advance sharing of information and knowledge of future topics. Our focus is on future studies, foresight, and futures literacy. So what should you expect? Well, you will gain direct access to knowledge and information produced by the top minds in this field. WFSF is a UNESCO and UN consultative partner and a truly global NGO with members in over 60 countries. Today, we have a top researcher from the University of Alberta who will be discussing a system approach that will help us make better sense of the world around us. So what should you expect to gain from the show? Well, today we discuss Dr. Richard Stark's most recent work, Making Sense of the Future. The book suggests a few goals for our societies and goes about identifying strategies for achieving them. The book has a how-to section for each chapter. So if you're looking to find out how to identify goals, strategies, trends, surprises, using a cross-disciplinary approach, then this show is for you. But wait, there is more. We will also talk about dystopian futures and how to deal with them. So stay tuned. All right, so let me say a few words about Dr. Rick Sostak. He has been with the University of Alberta for more than 35 years. He's the author of 19 books, 60 journal articles, and other publications. He focuses on world history, economic history, interdisciplinary studies, and knowledge organization. His most recent books are Making Sense of World History, and we certainly need to have another talk on this one, and Making Sense of the Future, which is actually the topic of today's conversation. So without further ado, Let's welcome him to the show. Hi, Rick. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ron. Thanks for having me. How wonderful to see you today. And thank you so much for taking the time to you know, meet with me, the audience, and the other members of WFSF. So uh, I hope I did not do too bad of a job at the introduction. That but please, <laughs> if I missed anything important, could you play, please say a few words about yourself? 
Yeah, I guess I, I've been a very interdisciplinary scholar. I've got a couple of textbooks on how to do interdisciplinary research. And then, as you mentioned, I recently wrote a book in world history, and, and that all set me up for the, the book we're talking about today, uh, Making Sense of the Future. But thank you for a great introduction. Well, how wonderful. Let's uh, get started talking a little bit about the book. So how did you come to write this book? As in many things of life, I, I was having lunch with an alumnus from the department I share, chair, and he suggested that my university should have a course on the future, and I thought that was a good idea. I chatted with my dean. She thought it was a great idea. Um, I've always been um, kind of on the on the edges of the future studies community as a, as a scholar of interdisciplinarity, but I did a, a bit more reading. I was inspired by the, the book by Bishop and Hines teaching about the future that describes the, the whole program they have in Houston. And um, they, in that book, urged someone to write a book that could be useful for a standalone course. I, I've come to think um, that every university in the world should have a course about the future, but there aren't enough people with decades of experience in the field of future studies. So I wanted to write a book that would be easy for someone who hasn't been immersed in the field for decades to, to teach a course. Because I knew myself as a chair, I wasn't teaching. So if I created a course at my university, I was going to be hiring someone to teach it who wouldn't have vast experience in the field. So that's the goal, uh, to create a book that's easy to teach from for someone who's might be fairly new to the field. And that means I hope that it's also useful for people who might want to read about the future, who might want a handy introduction, or maybe for book clubs. I think this could be a fun sort of book for a, a book club to take on. Yeah, but I think this is a part what, of what we do best as futurists is share knowledge. And this is so wonderful that uh, you thought about sharing all this information and helping educate others about you know, how to teach the future. Now, uh, can you describe how the book is structured? Uh, actually, I, I think I have the book plan with me here. So let me uh, pull it up. Uh, so if you don't mind, explain to us, how is this book structured? Yeah, so I guess I should first confess that I love drawing flowcharts, and there's a few of them in the book. Um, so there's, there's five substantive chapters in the book, you know, sandwiched between a brief introduction and a brief conclusion. So in chapter two, we try to identify a set of goals that the vast majority of people in a society might agree to. Um, and then in chapter three, we see if we can identify some strategies for moving us toward those goals. Um, but of course, we know in future studies that um, we can't just plan on how to get from the present to our desired future. We have to also look at how the future is unfolding of its own accord. So in chapter four, we look at likely trends uh, that will continue into the future. And in chapter five, we look at um, what is generally called wild cards in the future studies literature or what uh, other people might think of as surprises, things like epidemics or natural disasters. Um, and so we, we see how we might have to adjust our strategies to deal with these trends and surprises and still try to move us towards our desirable goals. And then finally, once we've identified, hopefully, some strategies from getting us towards plausible futures, how the future might unfold if we didn't do anything towards desirable futures, then we have 
chapter six looks at how we can then advocate um, for these strategies. Um, so there's, I think, a logical structure. I should recognize, I think a lot of people in future studies might have started with the trends and the surprises. I thought it important for us to discuss goals first. And I also thought it was useful to get some discussion of strategies out there to give people some hope that we can, in fact, make a better future if we put our minds to it. Yeah, and but if you, I'm oh, sorry, if you don't start with any goals, we don't know where we're going. If we don't know where we're going, any place we land is fine, isn't it? Well, that's, I think the danger of starting with the trends and the surprises would be that you then, like you say, you're just trying to deal with crises and you've lost track of where you're trying to, to get to. So yes, I think it's important for us to know what our goals are. I mean, and then every chapter has a structure, as you mentioned at the start, each chapter starts with a how-to, how do we identify goals? How do we identify strategies? And then the bulk of the chapter is a bunch of examples. Here's a, here's a goal, here's another goal. But then every chapter ends with an integrative exercise. The whole chapter tries to take a systems approach. We look at each goal and talk about how it interacts, but then we end the chapter by saying, oh, do our goals fit together? Do our strategies fit together? How do the trends interact? How do the surprises interact? Uh, actually, you put method to madness, so that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I wanted to ask you a different kind of question. So in the book, you talk about, you know, societal goals. So let's talk a little bit about that. So we live in a time of intense political polarization. Is it really possible to identify societal goals around which there might be some broad consensus? In other words, how do we find common ground? Yeah, that that's a really great question. It can seem some days like it's impossible to achieve consensus. But I think because uh, political de debate tends to be dominated in, in Canada as in the United States by people on the one side who don't seem to like any government program and people on the other side who seem to love every government program. I think, you know, we, we have intense debates about welfare. I think the vast majority of people want to help the less fortunate, but they of course don't like to be taken advantage of. They don't want, they don't want to encourage laziness or whatever. So what we want to do then, what we should be striving together to do is identify a set of strategies that on the one hand helps people who need some help, but tries to help them in a way that encourages them to make productive contributions to society. And I think that's the sort of thing that uh, a course about the future tries to get us, get a bunch of people in a room talking about issues, seeing if they can identify some innovative strategies that can get us to where most of us want to be, like a, a balanced sort of policy that helps people um, without being too open to abuse and without giving people the wrong incentives and so on. We're never going to get perfect policies. We don't live in a perfect world. But I think one of, one of the insights of the field of future studies is that by getting a diverse people, group of people in the room, and talking about issues, we can often come up with better solutions. Um, so if we can get past our the polarization and, and first recognize our shared goals, then it becomes entirely possible to, to move on and start talking about strategies that can get us towards those shared goals. Okay, and again, those goals can often be nuanced, that we want a bit of this and a bit of that. And again, we have to look within a system sort of 
um, structure and make sure that in pursuing one goal, we're not totally trashing some other goal. Yeah, I, oh, think I should. Yeah. Um, so one of the so the how to part in that chapter, I recognize that there's a handful of ways that people make decisions and especially eth ethical decisions. So philosophers talk about three of those that we can look we can look at the consequences where we can have some sort of decision rule like the golden rule that we try to follow or we can have some set of values like honesty that we try to follow. And then psychologists will tell us that we often make decisions on the basis of intuition and then justify them after and anthropologists will say we're often guided by traditions or peer pressure or whatever. And so what we try to do in that chapter is say, can we identify goals that can be justified in all five of these ways? And that's, I think, the best possible strategy for coming up with a set of goals that can appeal to a large number of people. Yeah, I think it's important, uh, you know, and you, your work, uh, you mentioned that very often, you know, this idea of being inclusive. And I think that's one of the missions of the LFSF, which is to be inclusive about the future. We can't have a future where a few dictate uh, but you do, you know, go through great lengths to make sure that all voices are heard or most voices right. are heard and bringing people into debate. And I think future studies cannot be true unless we involve more people, right? That's exactly right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, strategies. You, you mentioned strategy or strategies, right? So how do we go about identifying a strategy or a set of strategies uh, for moving us toward our goals? Well, I think we first have to recognize a role for creativity. I think we are in a place in the history of the world where we're struggling to deal with a, a, a set of complex problems. I think we need some innovative solutions. And as we've both said a couple of times now, the, probably the best way to do that is to get diverse people in a room talking. I think, well, my book gives a whole bunch of suggested strategies. I think the, the really important thing about the book is it gives a, a set of questions that we can ask that can guide students to realize that they have something to contribute uh, to a conversation about how to, how to get us to a better future. I think one of the things we can do is look at the whole sweep of human history and see what, what sort of things have been tried in the past that we might tweak a little bit and, and try again in the future. Then we have to, of course, we can come up with all sorts of crazy ideas, then we have to carefully evaluate them. And so I think in, in that chapter, again, I emphasize a systems approach that we have to really carefully examine any strategy we dream up to see that it doesn't, that it doesn't get us toward some goals while, while really moving us away from other goals. And again, we can use those five sorts of decision-making tools. Not only do we want to evaluate our goals in a way that most people will like, but of course we want to come up with strategies for achieving those goals that most people will like. So, so to come up with strategies that's, that's tricky, we need to be creative, look at history. To evaluate strategies, we need to use a systems analysis and, the, the five, and, and try to come up with strategies that will appeal to people who think in five different ways. Well, you mentioned crazy ideas and, and usually those are uh, the better ones or the best ones. So do you, in your book, do you suggest any unusual strategies? Well, there's probably a little bit of unusual most, most of the way through the book that, that, of course, I talk about some fairly, like we talk about things like carbon pricing and so on. Um, 
but I try to put in little tweaks in, in most places. Let's think about maybe we could do a little bit of this or a little bit of that. The most radical thing that I come, come up with or that I suggest is the idea of choosing some public officials by lottery. As, as you may know, this was something the ancient Greeks did. It was done in a few other societies in history, generally much smaller polities than we deal with in the modern world. But I think it's at least a useful thought exercise if we had, given, given that a lot of people of various political persuasions worry that politicians do not serve the public interest as well as they might, then, well, the obvious answer to that is, well, what if we just put some regular people, if we just randomly selected from the voter list a few people, uh, and then think, what, what if, if in legislatures in any country there were a few people, we could start really small, that weren't elected but were chosen by lottery, um, would they just become beholden to the parties and act like regular politicians or would they perhaps be a voice for reason and principle? Would they be striving to achieve bipartisanship? Uh, I personally, I think it's worth experimenting with. I, I think uh, as, well, as we'll see later, there, there's much to worry about in the world today. I'm, I'm willing to try some novel things. Of course, the danger is that we might uh, end up, and almost inevitably, we would select some people who, who might not uh, uh, wow us with their, um, with their approach to public policy. But, but I think the, the real question is there, do we trust the average person? In, in a democracy, we actually have to have some confidence that the average person if properly resourced, could make really good decisions. Um, so uh, I, I throw that out there. So that's probably the most radical idea in the book. Uh, not everyone's going to buy into it, but it creates some usual questions about what kind of democracy we want and what we think of the capabilities of our fellow citizens and so on. Well, I kind of like this idea, you know, uh, well, at least on this side of the border, the lot we end up with in the last few years has been very difficult. Mm -hmm. So perhaps a lot of we said, well, something is better than what we found so far. Well, and I, I mean, I should, I, I share it. I share your concern. I, I've been a little bit politically active in my life and I've known some politicians that I actually had a fair bit of respect for, but, but I can understand where people think that on, on average, they, they they don't they don't wow us with their and that's why I think one of the concerns about selecting people as at random is that they might not be really knowledgeable or whatever. But it's not clear that the people we elect we elect are showing us that they're incredibly knowledgeable about the issues. Or, I think they proved otherwise. You know, yes. they really are not. That's right. <laughs> uh, but we're stuck with them for four years. You know, so it's kind of yeah. kind of hard. What can we do about that? You know. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, trends and surprises. So uh, what are the guidelines for analyzing trends and those famous wild cards? Right. Um, so, again, I think systems analysis permeates the entire book. And so you don't want to just look at any trend in isolation. You want to think about how it will interact with other trends. Um, with trends, you really want to be kind of take a really long historical perspective and not just kind of think, oh, this has been increasing dramatically for the last five years. So let's extend that trend out another 30 years and, and the, you know, and things look really bad. Um, there's been lots of trends in history that accelerated for a little while and then 
and then tailed off. Uh, that might in fact be a, a general occurrence in history. And of course, just simple mathematics tells that if a trend is accelerating, it won't continue to accelerate forever. It will at some point uh, start to decelerate. And if you think back a few decades, lots of futurists worried decades ago about increasing rates of population growth. It's perhaps with hindsight, it's easy to say maybe we shouldn't have been that surprised that those tailed off a bit. Um, but it, it's certainly something that we want to reflect. It's worth, you know, right now, of course, trends in climate are really scary. It's certainly a worthwhile activity to say, well, if those trends include, you know, carry on for another century, this is what the world would look like. But the likelihood is those trends won't continue because we will eventually. The, the question is how much damage has to be done to the earth before we, we are, um, we start changing the way we operate and, and how quickly we can actually um, reduce the trends in temperature and so on. Um, so I think one has to be careful. One has to be nuanced, um, not just, like I say, extend a trend um, with a ruler off into the future. I think the other thing that one of the clear insights of future studies these days is that we shouldn't predict just one future so we, we need to think about various ways that the future might unfold, identify a set of plausible futures. That's what I try to do in the book. Um, with, with surprises, um, I think the best guide to us is history. What sort of wild cards have happened in history? How have societies dealt with them? What are the good ways that societies have dealt with surprises in the past? What are the bad ways that societies have dealt with the past? And, you know, to recognize, to, to put a positive spin on it, that, of course, well, wild cards are generally um, disruptive by nature. They also create opportunities. And if we are actually able to imagine strategies for moving us towards desirable futures, we may find that during a surprise, we're able to move in that direction. Uh, we, you know, there was a range of social policies introduced temporarily during the pandemic that, you know, maybe some of them are worth keeping around in the longer term. We actually, um, in both Canada and the United States, saw real drops in child poverty during the pandemic because of the, the massive funding that was pushed out the door to deal with the pandemic. And we, we certainly don't want to keep all that funding in place, but it raises some questions about whether keeping some of those policies in place gets us towards some of our longer term goals. So that's another sort of thing to keep in mind when dealing with surprises is whether they're not just a horrible thing, but whether they create some opportunities for, for moving us towards our desirable futures. Well, I, I just at this point needs to warn our audience that you have two economists and a call, and that means <laughs> we, we may end up with three if not for dissenting opinions. Uh, but I wanted to pick up on, on one of your thoughts here. And indeed, so it is real, uh, the you know, reduction in poverty, especially on the uh, in childhood uh, age brackets. And some people actually advocate for you know universal income, which is uh, a different uh, societal approach. Uh, maybe it would be great to hear your take on that. Yeah, it's actually something that comes up a few times in the book because, you know, back in the talking about goals i think we want probably less inequality than there is mm -hmm. um, right now and we want security i think a lot of the challenges we're seeing in politics today is that people are worried 
They don't, they're worried about the future. And so policies that we can put in place that make people less worried about the future, make it easy for us to then deal with climate change and a whole bunch of other um, problems. So, so of course, a basic income kind of worries some people because it might, you know, might be taken advantage of by some people. I think when, and we have, of course, we don't know. One of the lessons of the book is we should experiment more. There's been a few experiments with basic income around the world. They've generally been small scale and haven't lasted very long. There's some re some ways of interpreting at least some of those experiments to suggest that when people get a basic income, they actually then go back to school and get some training or, you know, are able to devote more time to their kids and raise better children. That's all that the people don't just sit around and watch television when they get they get a basic income. That they actually use that opportunity when, where they no longer have to worry about feeding their family. They they go out most of them and and do useful things. I suspect that we could probably get some societal agreement on a fairly low basic income, so that it just kind of you know keeps people so that they're not starving, you know, they can feed their families, they can have a roof over their heads, but, you know, they probably still want them to have to go out and and work in order to to get more. But I think that's certainly, a, it's certainly a policy that I think deserves more attention. We have to recognize that, you know, there's a potential downside that we should be honest about. Um, and so, and I think where possible, I think it's the sort of thing we could do longer experiments with, see, you know, what happens in a community where there's a basic income in place for a decade, where we really have a chance to see whether people with fear taken out of their life for a decade really turn their lives around, and how many of people just abuse it and, and do nothing with their lives for a whole decade. Um, and then we can, with, then we can scale it up. And it doesn't, and of course, the other thing that we haven't been able to measure is how much it can replace other social programs. That if we had a basic income in place, how much, how many of the other systems that we have in place to help the least fortunate members of society, we would no longer need. And that's one of the potential, you know, for an economist, we worry about administrative costs and so on. Yes. One of the beauties of it is it's incredibly easy to administer and it potentially gets rid of a bunch of programs that are much harder to over to administer and that overlap and are wasteful and, and so on. So it might turn out that it's not incredibly costly and that it that it does lift a whole bunch of people out of poverty and and gives them the the capacity to become productive members of society. So so I think so thank you for asking me. That's I mean it's not I'm obviously not the only person, but it is something it's a strategy that actually pursues a bunch of goals and it has, you know, it has some side effects that we have to worry about, but it seems very much worth investigating. It wouldn't be the only, I, I also think we might want to think about some cleverly structured, structured public works programs to, to get the unemployed doing useful things in society. Those roads. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, oh, there's a whole bunch of things and maybe it's a way of getting, you know, I think our volunteer communities oh, yes. could identify a whole bunch of tasks that, you know, neighborhood beautification and so on, that relatively unskilled people can do useful things. I, 
I think, again, it's just thinking outside the box. I think we have a, a set of tired policies that don't quite get us where we want to be, and some innovative ideas might get us to much better places. Certainly. So uh, in the book, you talk a lot about the worries, the worries that uh, we as a society feel. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, one of the current trends, and that one is precisely societal collapse, right? Yeah. So it's not really a big surprise, given the uncertain environment we face, war, crisis, gasoline prices, you name it. You know, uh, there are many futures that predict societal collapse or some deeply altering transformation. So how do you address those concerns? Yeah, I get, and I, again, you know, the book tries to build off of my world history book. And I suppose one lesson you could draw from world history is that every society eventually collapses. At the height of the Roman Empire or the British Empire, you wouldn't have predicted that they were going to uh, disappear over the next couple of centuries. I think we have to be careful drawing that lesson from world history, but it is, you know, we shouldn't be complacent. And of course, there's been lots of events over the last few years where people's faith in democracy has been shaken, uh, people's sense of a shared community has been shaken. There's been instances in a, in a bunch of different countries of political violence. Uh, so I think it's, it's not hard to imagine a future of societal collapse. I think that's a very costly event, so I think we should still be trying to work to avoid it. Um, but I think we should recognize, and, and that, so I think in my book, I mostly try to push strategies that can be introduced slowly and humbly and evaluated carefully. But I think we might recognize that in a crisis, we might have to make dramatic changes. Um, that's riskier, but it might be necessary. So I guess my, my starting point is the general future studies belief that we can't predict any future. So we shouldn't be 100% sure that our society is about to collapse. We should recognize it as one possibility. I think a possibility we should try to avoid. If it is going to happen, I, I think another lesson of history is that in revolutionary tumult, um, bad things often happen. The new government that comes into place is even worse than the, over, the old one that was overthrown. So I think we want to have a good idea of what sort of society we want to rebuild if we do end up with a societal collapse. But I think we want to try, like I said, to avoid it if at all possible. Uh, recognize the dangers, recognize that we may not have lots of time to reform the societies that we live in, um, but, but try to do that. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you, because you do talk about societal collapse, and as you know, it, it's kind of a, a constant in, in the media right now. But I believe one of the roles we as futurists have is to kind of bring some common sense. And, and, and I wanted to hear your thoughts because they use societal collapse as a tool for fear mongering. And, yeah. and, and fear is a commodity that sells. So how do you think we as futurists can collaborate to society? How can we fight this, this fear-mongering uh, trend that we see out there today? Well, I think it requires a bunch of different things, would I, would I guess be my, my short answer there, that we need, I think, to do some reforms in the way we elect politicians. I, I mentioned the lottery before. There's Lots of the discussion these days about open primaries in the United States, which 
might allow us to elect uh, non-extremists um, uh, more often. Uh, give, I, I think, and basically, I think there's a variety of reforms that, that give voters more choice. That that take a bit more power away from par political parties and and give it to people. So I think we want to reform our political processes as much as possible. Um, and then we also need, but I think faith in democracy not only depends on reforming those processes, but us coming up with strategies that governments can do so that unless we see governments actually dealing with climate change or a whole bunch of problems, then of course, uh, we're, we're not going to get anywhere. So we need to both reform our democracy and come up with policies uh, that work to address our problems. And I think another thing that I do in the book is not just focus on institutions, the laws and regulations um, that we want to change, but to, to talk a lot about values that we all, that we know that institutions don't work unless they're supported by values. Um, you know, the, the war on drugs tells us that we, we can't just enforce laws if a big chunk of the population doesn't believe in them. Um, so if we want to have democracy, we need values uh, where we actually respect the people we disagree with. And that's, you know, and that's not always easy. But as long as people respect democracy, then we need to respect them. We need to disagree with people, recognize that democracy in the end is the right of people to make stupid decisions and that we have to respect um, even if we can't understand why other people are voting for the people that they do, we, we have to respect that and, and try to achieve as much consensus as possible. And I think on a broader front, we've done a remarkably good job in most of the Western world in recent decades of increased respect for diversity of a, of a bunch of different kinds. But the, the downside there, when, when you survey young people today, and ask them about ethical issues, they'll kind of say, whatever a group decides. If, if a particular group wants to be dishonest or irresponsible, oh, that's, yeah. that's fine. And I, I don't think we have to go down that road. I, so I, I think that that's the ethical challenge of our time to respect diversity of a whole bunch of different sorts, but, but nevertheless expect everyone to be respectful and honest and responsible and, and compassionate and so on. We need to I think articulate some shared goals that tie us together or or we can easily be torn apart. And a challenge there is who on earth does that? Our politicians can't exactly lead an ethical renaissance. Maybe some of them can, but most of them aren't trusted enough to do it. And so maybe we need entertainers and sports stars to to do it. It's, it's, it's not clear. But I, I think that's, again, the value of gathering groups of people together and having these conversations and trying to maybe get some um, groundswell of support for for some sort of renaissance and values that, that can support democracy and a sense of a shared purpose, that no country can survive without a sense of a, a shared purpose. Sense of community, yes, of course. So uh, I actually want to remain on this collapse topic a little bit longer. So in the book, and, and you already mentioned that, but you identified decreased sense of community and decreased faith in democracy yeah. as engines for a dystopian future. So uh, what sort of strategies can we adopt to prevent that? Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think I have a schematic um, that you sent me on the dystopian future. So specifically, 
decreased sense of community and decreased faith in democracy. So what kind of strategies can we um, mm -hmm. adopt to kind of uh, prevent that? And I guess I, I should stress again that that's not the only possible future that I talk about. I, I do hold out hope that we can avoid the dystopian future. Um, but it's certainly one possible future that we need to grapple with. And unfortunately, over the last decades, we've seen examples of all those things that we've seen um, this political polarization where we don't respect the people we disagree with. We call them names and, uh, and, and dehumanize them. And that's a real danger to democracy. And there is this, I think we, there is this sense that in our pursuit of this laudable, in our laudable pursuit of valuing diversity, I think a lot of people feel that we've lost a sense of a broader community. And, and I think that that is dangerous, that we need to, we need both at the global level, we need to have a sense of our common humanity and work together on things like climate change. Um, within each country, within any democratic country, there has to be some sense that we, some sense of shared purpose, some sense of shared citizenship, and I think some sense of shared values that we, you know, that we can agree that we want, you know, that we want people to be personally responsible, we want people to be socially responsible, um, we want people to be caring and respectful. I think, um, I mean, I am worried, and I think we're starting to see already a, a bit of pushback against diversity. You know, I ask a question in the book, if you have to choose between diversity and honesty, which do you choose? Uh, I think that's a horrible, and I think we don't have to make it. We can have both. We can respect all kinds of diversity and still expect everyone uh, to behave in an honest manner or explain, I mean, again, every ethical rule has potential exceptions, but if people are going to behave dishonestly, we can reasonably expect them to have to explain themselves. That's, this all may seem pie in the sky in, in the present world that we live in, where we're a long way away from that, but I think, again, we need to kind of recognize as people that, that we need to change both our values and our institutions, that we are, we are a long way from where we want to be. And we need, you know, we need to recognize that democracy can't survive without mutual respect. And it can't, especially can't survive if there's widespread political violence. We've seen some examples of political violence. Um, democratic societies always face this conflict between needing to maintain order and wanting to give people as much freedom as possible. And so that only works if the vast majority of people follow the rules. And if a sizable minority decides to break the rules, then, then we have a problem. So, so I think we can avoid the, I still, I still hold out hope for my children and grandchildren that we can avoid the dystopian future, but I think we have to recognize that it's a possibility that we should be very much trying to avoid. So let's talk a little bit about the truckers, right? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, well, I think people um, gave uh, others uh, the opportunity to manifest, but that turned into like weeks and weeks of uh, upheaval yeah. in, in Canada's capital. And unfortunately, uh, the idea was exported into the U.S. too, but I think yeah. 
and this side of the border, the police was perhaps a little bit more forceful. Um, yes, well, and of course, there that gets back to the conflict I'm talking about that we, the governments on the one hand, have to maintain order, but we want to have as much freedom as possible. So we want to allow people to demonstrate, even if we don't don't agree with them. We want people to have the right to gather and scream and shout, but we have to place limits on it. And, you know, occupying Parliament Hill for weeks on end, um, making a lot of noise, forcing thousands of people to either leave their apartments or um, put up with horns honking and so on for weeks on end. Um, you know, the government at some point had to was going to have to say this is this this is enough and and so again we get this polarized debate where some people are saying you know freedom is inviolable but of course one person's freedom ends when they're in, in interfering with another person's freedom um you know your freedom to not get vaccinated you know unfortunately that that endangers other people that's i think the government has to be guided by medical the medical evidence and its decision making so it has to limit the freedoms of people who don't get vaccinated I on that's you know an unavoidable trade-off and people and governments have to decide when a demonstration has lasted too long um, whether they had to do whether they had to end it in quite the way they did it that's a conversation for another day but I another think, hour <laughs> yes entirely but but I think to recognize that that conflict between order and freedom is always there and that when people are screaming that you've you know about freedom that they need to recognize that you know freedom is always has, has always got limits that one person's freedom ends when they're interfering with another person's um, and that states have to make these tricky decisions yeah so uh, and I think one of the beauties of the combination of your work is yes we talk about the future but uh, you talk about making sense of history right and i hope the future generations will look at our mistakes and the things mm -hmm. we did wrong right and they say well those those guys were uh, really fools uh, so that they will not have to uh, uh, repeat our mistakes and perhaps they they will learn and i think that's the beauty of uh, looking at your work is well, we are that's that's where we're going. Those are some potential futures, but look where we have been and how we dealt with with those crises. And perhaps there is indeed a better way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I think this gets back to something we both mentioned earlier: the value of getting people together. Because one of the one of the things we try to do, I, I and again, I hope the book. Though I give answers to all the questions, I really think the important thing about the book is that it gives a structure of questions that yes. the groups of people can get together and engage. And I think the value, one huge value of that is shocking people out of their comfort zone, because I think we all have a tendency to accept the world the way it is. Okay, So if you think about the Black Lives Matter protests, I think that shocked a lot of people out of a complacency to, to recognize that there were that there were a, a lot of things wrong and with the way minority groups were treated by the police and that, that changes had to be made. And I think a lot of people who would define themselves as progressive had, had not really cared a lot about that issue and, and became kind of concerned. I think a lot of people across the political spectrum came to recognize things that they had previously not been that conscious of during during those protests. And so 
I think that's the sort of thing we we do. That there's there's a lot of problems in the world, and that uh, part of it is that you know it's easy to become overwhelmed with them. So I think on the one hand we want to shock people out of their comfort zone and get them to recognize, oh, we have to deal with climate change. We we have to do something about racism. You know these are problems that we shouldn't just ignore. And also to say, but there are things that we can do to, to give them some hope. Because if you, and those things, of course, reinforce them. You're not, you're not going to face up to your problems if you don't think there's ways that you can deal with them. Um, so I hope the book in some small way gets people to, to reflect, to recognize that, you know, our world is pretty good in some way. And I think that's another thing. We have to recognize the good side. I think Certainly, yeah. the people who, you know, you and I have been critical of our present politicians, but I'd still take democracy over authoritarianism any day. So as yeah, the, as, the alternative is much worse. <laughs> yes. As, as Churchill said, democracy is the worst system except for all the rest. I, I think we are often not as conscious as we should be of what we have to lose. And so I think we need these conversations, recognize what we have to lose, recognize the problems we have to deal with and develop some optimism that we can actually collectively deal with the problems and we can build a better future. If we work together, I guess. Yes. And I think the beauty of uh, your work is the questions that you pose, right? We have to question ourselves and people often think and many believe that, you know, we should be giving people answers. No. We're not about the answers. We're about the questions to help mm -hmm. people question the reality, question the world, and question the directions we're going, right? If you think the direction is great, wonderful, work towards it. If you don't like the direction we are going, work much harder to prevent it. And I think that's the role of us futurists yeah. is to come in and ask those tough questions. Say, is this what you want? Well, if you keep doing this, this is where you're going to end. Is this where you want to end? Right. No. Well, then we need to take some action, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I did think in writing the book that I had to, you know, give some answers to the questions, but but I try to make it clear that, you know, these are just my answers. There's there's likely better answers out there. But I different ones, about, right? Yeah. I don't have space to talk about every possible trend or every possible surprise um, or every possible strategy. So there's lots of room. And again, I'm hoping in any class or book club that people in those conversations come up with their own ideas and and that those get bounced around. And hopefully they will share too. I, I think that's the beauty of the dialogue is that you and I see the world one way and people see the world differently. And if we share our ideas, you know, we'll be all better off, you know. Uh, so I wanted to ask you a, a different kind of question. You know, the literature of future studies is so vast. So how do you go about, you know, capturing key insights from the literature? Well, and that, that of course was one of the motivations for writing the book, as I, I, I feared for some new instructor being asked to teach a future studies course and trying to get a hang on on this uh, this vast literature. But I think you know the future studies really has matured a lot over the last few decades. So I think the book takes as its starting point a couple of key ideas. So one of them is backcasting this idea that we identify both plausible futures and desirable futures and then figure out how we get from plausible futures to, to desirable futures. So I think that's perhaps the most common method in the field of future studies. And my whole book can be seen as an exercise in backcasting. I think uh, 
systems analysis is perhaps another key characteristic of future studies as a whole, and it permeates my whole book, that we're always looking at how things connect to other things. Um, I think this the idea that we've talked about, that, you know, what we want to do is get diverse people together in a room and give them important questions to to address. I think that also motivates the book. So I think there's, you know, a handful of key ideas from future studies that that are the backbone of the book. I also uh, I think there was a there was a survey article by um, Alex Fernani. I probably pronounced that badly in Futures a couple of years ago where he did some bibliometric analysis and identified six clusters of people. So some who focus on technological change, some who focus on the environment, some who focus on imminent societal collapse and so on. And, and I can say that I draw fairly heavily on all six clusters. One of the more interesting ones is, uh, as you know, there's a group of people that are focused on organizational futures, people who you know, go out and consult with corporations or government agencies or NGOs and try to get them uh, to plan for the future better. Um, that tends to be the literature that, that interacts with the others, but tends to cite itself most. And I think in the book, the to recognize that a lot of the strategies that we talk about have come from them, that they're out there, you know, running workshops for these organizations. And so they've had to identify a bunch of useful strategies to guide these conversations and get organizations to think about their future. And then that's, and that leads me to the final thing is that mm -hmm. a lot of these strategies, um, the futures wheel, backcasting wheel, scenario planning, um, uh, even the Delphi method, these are useful class exercises. So in the book, I give kind of a thumbnail sketch of how you go about doing a future wheel. And I suggest that that's a useful exercise for a class to engage. And that especially, as some people have suggested, we could have one group of students do a future wheel around one trend, and then have another group do a future wheel on a different trend. And then we can get the groups together to see how those trends interact. Um, for those not familiar with the future wheel, you start out with a trend and then you look at the effects of that trend and then you look at the effects of those effects. And then if you, and then by combining a couple wheels, you can see how these effects will interact with each other and so on. And that hopefully communicates some of the complexity of the future, but that it's perhaps a, a comprehensible complexity that we can that we can kind of get our hands on it. Um, and also I think, I haven't used the word empower. I think what we wanna do is empower anyone reading this book or any student taking the course to realize that they have something to contribute, that they can see, that they can add something to a future wheel that no one else has thought of. I think this is the important message, you know, is the empowerment and making sure that people participate. It's a dialogue, right? Yep. If only we're talking then there's no dialogue right. but uh if others participate then i think we have a better chance at building or co-constructing the future together and and, mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the beauties of your work is you you kind of inspire people you help us ask better questions you help us get motivated about about the future and uh, as i said at the start my dream would be that every every college in the world has a futures course and that what we're doing is empowering students to then go out into the world and work towards a better future 
Well, I, and I couldn't possibly let you go without asking you one question. So I hear you are good at poker, and I'm not. So I, I, I don't know how to do a poker face when I'm, I'm expecting some, some card to appear and another one appears, I kind of, <laughs> I, I don't think I can hide. So what's your advice for poker players out there? Yeah, I'm not, I, obviously working on a poker face is one of the, one of the keys. Oh, okay. And I think for some people that's easier than another. I think you, you really just have to kind of force yourself to think about other stuff and not think about the pot you might be just about to win. Um, I think especially in online poker, having a good grip on the probabilities is really important. I think I've talked to some people who are like professional online poker players and they, they're doing these kind of detailed mathematical calculations. Um, and that's of course, and of course the broader lesson there is to not let your emotions run away with you, that it's very easy to get excited and think, oh, I have a chance of winning big when in fact your chance is not that big and you know losing a lot of money. Well, as I you can the, see, I can, I can no longer pull my hair. So I think there we go. Can... Yeah. And then the other thing I think, and this is a general lesson in life, is to kind of play the long game that you want early in the poker game to be to not be too predictable because that if you're not predictable, if the other players can't figure you out very easily, then of course that increases the chances that you can make some big money later on. See, so not being predictable, there's some pot at the end yep. of the rainbow. Okay, yep, good. That's right. <laughs> well, all right. It seems uh, we will have a lot more to talk about. Uh, so mm -hmm. we have more discussion for another day. We certainly have to bring you back to talk about making sense of history. Uh, Dr. Sostak, you know, thank you so much for your being here with me and the audience today. It is really a great opportunity to highlight uh, the work WFSF members do and how we can all benefit from this uh, knowledge sharing. Thank, thank you very much for inviting me. This has been a quite enjoyable experience. Okay, so let's uh, start uh, thanking folks again. Thank you so much for being here and please stay tuned this show in focus is broadcasted via futures television our home of the future on television and you can find us on roku tv it is available freely via the roku stick or on roku enabled tv sets so start looking for futures television and do add us to your list of preferred channels again thank you so very much for joining us and I hope to see you again soon in another episode of In Focus. Uh, you can rest assured we have a list of great guests ready to share their views with you. I'm going to leave you with our institutional message. Thank you so much.